You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. What is a thread that connects human behavior to a range of pathologies? On this episode, Abigail Esman, author of Rage, later Tom Claver returns to the podcast to talk about his latest book, Tombstone, and finally, commentary from Peter Blauner. Out of the darkness, into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. I am running on East 89th Street in the dark. Cannot breathe, cannot stop. Now, what interests me about writers, there's two stories. One is what's between the pages of the book, and the second story is their personal journey. So share with us, where did you come from and how did you grow up? I came from New York City. Um, I grew up um, on the Upper East Side. I went to a private school in the city. Um, I was very much involved with the art world. My parents were involved in the art world of the 1960s in New York. So it was a very privileged um, childhood in many, many ways. Um, very involved with with the intellectual life of New York and especially right. the art scene. Now, my take of the book is based on my reading, if I can distill it down, it's all about relationships. Would you agree or disagree? I would disagree. To what, how so? Because I'm going through everything I read and you talk about individual relationships, group relationships, how that all unfolds. Well, in that sense, yes. It has to do with the ways communities relate to each other, the way people relate to communities, um, and the way people relate to one another within a family. In that sense, yes, it does. Now, based on writing this book, was it harder for you personally because you're in the book or professionally? Neither. It was a book that I felt I needed to write, and I, I didn't really think about either of those things. I just knew that I wanted to write it and I had wanted to write it for a long time and I felt it was an important book to get out there. So what point in your writing career did you decide this was the time to sit down and write this book? Well, I didn't write the book until I sold the proposal. The book was based on an essay that I wrote shortly after 9-11, which won an award from The Economist. And it was at that moment that I knew this was something I was going to write about further and really focus on. So that was in 2002, I won the award. And I, I think from that point on, I sort of knew at some point this was going to happen. And the book was born out of 9-11. It, I think, really grew wings after Trump came into office and white supremacism came on the rise. and. We saw so many things expanding in terms of public violence. So I, I think it became more urgent to me then, but it was a book that I had had on the back burner for a long time. Now, also what interests me about writers and people in general, I think there's a dichotomy there. And the dichotomy for me is we have our own inner voice, our own inner dialogue, and then there's the external form of communication. In a sense, you can ponder this, which is more truthful, the thoughts we have inside of ourselves or what we talk to the outside world in the sense we edit what we say? It isn't always honest. It isn't always what I know deep down to be true. 
um, but it's more honest than what I would probably present to the world. Yeah. Do you wrestle with that? That you have to kind of hold back and eat with your public face? I actually get into a lot of trouble with my public face because I have a tendency to be extremely honest, um, very frank. I am not good at being diplomatic. Um, I don't really think that we have time for that kind of thing. So I wrestle less, in fact, with what I present to the world than I do with whether I'm telling myself the truth. But being honest is very important to me. Now, I like what I call time and place. In this book is 9-11-01. Why is that important to include it in the story of rage? What are you saying with that event that we all, we all really remember? Well, the book is about the relationship between domestic abuse and terrorism. So, and, and it was born out of an event, that event on 9-11. Um, there's no way I think you can discuss anything about the people who perpetrate terrorist acts and the the cultures in which they're raised, the families in which they're raised, what motivates them, and how we react to violence than to talk about the largest terrorist attack on, on American soil. So I said at the top, this book for me is a book about relationships. So let's explore parent and child. Okay. You write about the doting mother and the domineering father. Yeah. And the question I'll ask also is, if there's an absent parent, an absent mother, or an absent father, how does that affect the dynamics of the child growing up? Um, I'm not a psychologist. So I just want to make that clear from the start. So much of what I say in the book relating to those things, and one of the things that I would say, anything I would say to you now comes from my research as a journalist and my, my work specifically with this book. And it depends, of course, on so many factors. It depends on, on the culture they're living in and the community they're living in, um, on what kind of parent the remaining parent is. But it can be, particularly for a boy who loses his father, um, extremely disruptive and lead him to be vulnerable in his identity of what masculinity is. How that understanding is shaped will depend a great deal on how his mother treats him right. and how he is expected to act within the family in the absence of his father. So I'm going to pick up on what you just said, the absence of his father. Now, through the history of mankind, men have gone off to war. Lately, women do too. So when the male is removed from the situation, you can talk about the Civil War, World War I, Korean War, um, World War II, uh, the Iraqi Wars, the war in Vietnam. How does that also affect the child when the parent is removed in that situation and then the follow-up is what happens when that parent comes back to the dynamics of the family? I'd have to say, again, it really depends on the family, depends on the community, it depends on so many factors. Um, how long is the, is the father away? How much contact does he have with the family? How often does he come home? That's a very different thing than a, a, a father that abandons his wife and child or a father who dies. On the other hand, there was there was research done on the immigrant communities of Europe and the guest workers and how the fathers would from you know Morocco or Turkey or, or these countries that came as guest workers to Europe, moved to Europe, left their families behind 
And the boys, the eldest boys in particular, took over as the man of the house. And then the father would come back on vacations and it disrupted everything because the boy was used to calling all the shots and all of a sudden he was now the son and he was expected to obey and he had a different role. And that became complicated for for many families. Um, And a lot of those children later when they joined their father in the host country couldn't really find a role for themselves. And and, and it became a, a real problem in terms of how that generation grew to be a very violent generation. But I, I can't really say about people whose fathers go off to war for a year or two. I just don't know. My guest is Abigail R. Esmond. Her book is called Rage, Narcissism, Patriarchy, and the Culture of Terrorism. You have something that people are going to react to in a unique way. If I said it and say it, I would get in trouble. But it's in the book. And you have something that's called the concept that a man's honor lies between the legs for a woman. Can you please explain that? Well, I didn't make that up. <laughs> it's it's in the book because it is a saying in Arabic. And it's a saying, it's interesting. It's an, a saying in in. Muslim culture, and it's also right. a saying in Latin American culture. And what's interesting about that above all is that these are two very macho cultures in which women tend to be um, oppressed, put down, seen as um, inferior and as largely sexual bodies, procreating machines. The honor of the man is the most important thing in the family. It is what what they will die for, literally. And how the woman behaves reflects on his honor and his masculinity and his importance and his ability to control his family. All of these things are dependent on how the woman behaves. And if she misbehaves, there will be trouble. And that in many ways is what underscores domestic abuse in any culture, um, but it also is what underscores public violence, this idea of, of shaming, of humiliating, of hurting a man's honor um, in the public sphere. Now, I want to just refer to a quote from Tolstoy, and he says, quote, all happy families resemble one another, unhappy families, unhappy in their own way. What do you think he meant by that? Now, does that resonate with you in terms of what's inside the covers of your book, Rage? That's a big question. I think, I'm not sure that I agree with it um, in terms of what rage addresses. I think that those unhappy families are unhappy in very much the same way, and that is why they tend to have the same outcome, which is violence. Um, It's a very different situation than than what, what, what Tolstoy was addressing, but I think, I, I think that there are certain dynamics within the human mind and the way humans are, are are the way we relate to the world and the way we as you said relate to one another and those things are are universally affected by the same influences the same things that that come come into your life may will change you very much the same way they change many other people so um you know a child who is abused is going to have pretty much the same characterological makeup, no matter who his family is. 
Now, in the first chapter, it's about narcissists. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you, is there a difference between a narcissist and a pathological narcissist? Would you explain, please, amplify on that? Yeah, narcissism, I mean, when we talk about it in general terms, is really just about being self-important and maybe being vain or, or more concerned than you should be or than, than the average person would be um, and how you look or how you come off or how successful you are, um, what, what, what clothing label you're wearing. Right. Um, pathological narcissism is something much bigger than that. And it's measured by, um, there, there's an actual psychological test for it. It's in the DSM. And it's, it's characterized by a really strong sense of, of humiliation and shame, which you then override and overcome by being, by, with braggadocio, by, by seeing yourself and, and presenting yourself as superior to all others, smarter than everybody else, stronger than everybody else, more capable than anybody else better in every possible way than anyone else can ever be. The other thing that you do in that case is that therefore you can't ever do anything wrong, right? Right. Anything that that happens is not your fault. It's somebody else's fault. And you're the victim of what that person did. Let me mention two names. Mm -hmm. I say there are case studies. One is in your book and one should have been in your book. Mm -hmm. Osama bin Laden Mm -hmm. and Donald Trump. Do you want to explain those connections if they are applicable? They are, and they are both in the book. So I'm interested in about, we know probably more about Donald Trump's background than we really know about Osama bin Laden. So what led up to him in a sense, did he feel rejected from the family and and how his father raised him? And in a sense, it's not abandonment, but certainly I think it was part of his psychological makeup, what he went through. Well, it was a whole um, series of things. And again, it's never just simply abandonment. It's not just one. The, it, people aren't made up of one event. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a series of events in their lives that, that affects who they become. Osama bin Laden was born to, um, his father was, um, very, was married into the Saudi family. And, and so er, into Saudi royalty and and he worked for the Saudi royals. He lived in Saudi Arabia, but he was not Saudi himself. Osama bin Laden's mother was the only one of his father's wives who was not Saudi. So he was the he was the bad child. He was the lesser child. They right. called his mother the slave or the the, the servant. She was looked down on and he was looked down on and he was picked on by all of his siblings. The parents divorced. So there was that sense of abandonment. His father, when he did see him, was um, abusive to him often. But Osama looked up to him. So he sort of thought that that was the way to be. Osama's father was killed in in a helicopter crash. So in that sense, you really do have the abandonment. His father is now gone, and Osama is a child um, who has been sort of tossed aside by the rest of the family, and um, he goes off to boarding school. He has all this money. He has all this inheritance, but he goes off to boarding school, and he becomes a real womanizer. He becomes a real playboy, a man about town. 
but he's looking for a father figure. Right. And the father figure that he finds ultimately is a radical Islamist who leads him into, into getting involved in the war in Afghanistan and helping to fund the Mujahideen. Now, also in this book, you've had two different experiences with, I would say, domestic abuse. Yes. And this is um, very dramatic that you share this story. Um, you call the first person Boris and the second person Rick, separated by almost, I believe, about 20 years, because the first abuse happened when you were 17 years old, and then you were in your late 30s for the second time. Exactly. So I want you to talk about that. But the question I will pose to you, and I think it's a fair question, after experiencing it the first time, why let it happen a second time? That is such a loaded question, I can't begin to tell you. Um, you could say that, and the reason that I, that I say what I just said, and the reason why I think the book is important, is that you could say that to every single country that's experienced more than one terrorist attack. Right. Um, in my personal case, and I don't want to go into too much detail, um, I knew both men um, for a while before our relationship started. I trusted them both. Um, the second was someone I had known for a very long time, and I trusted him completely, completely. And there's something that happens in the course of a domestic, a domestic abusive relationship. There's no real adjective for that. Um, in a relationship of domestic abuse, and that is how your mind um, reshapes what it is that you're experiencing and how you re-evaluate who you are, who he is, um, what reality is. And that, that relates in a way back to what I was saying before about not always right. being honest with myself, because you don't always recognize what reality is under those circumstances. And um, you get lost. You get lost in what is my fault? What was his fault? What, what should I have done? What could I have done? What, um, what might have been different? And that's very much what we do in, in the face of terrorism, right? After 9-11, America kept saying, well, what did we do? And why do they hate us? And what, what should we do now? And should we leave the Middle East? And should we go into the Middle East? And should we fight back? Or should we? It's, it, it becomes so confusing. And your sense of reality becomes so fragmented that you don't really see what's, what's actually happening. Um, there's something else I really want to explore with you. And that's also... a chapter in your book called the shame and the power now you know when you're when you're a little child and you do something wrong the parent says by moving their fingers across shame on you shame on you but shame really is a very complicated issue how complicated is it um well it's complicated in the sense that i'm just trying to find the chapter right now but um it's complicated in the sense that there are two ways of understanding shame and one is shame on you, shame on you. And the other is this kind of really uh, bone-chilling, deep sense of utter humiliation and, and almost a, a, a wish to drop off the face of the earth. You know, not, not that when you, you get the kick me sign on your back, but when you really feel that you are a terrible, terrible person, you are shame. You are the face of humiliation. 
So it's not that shame, shame is a difficult concept in, in that there are two different kinds of shame. You could all say, oh, it's such a shame that such and such happened. This is far deeper than that. This, has, this goes down into the, the soul of who you are. Now, is there a connection as a flip side um, from shame to being a narcissist? Are they, inter, are, they inter, are they codependent? Are they interrelated? They are completely interrelated because narcissism emerges from that kind of shame. Narcissism is the defense mechanism for people who feel that kind of profound shame. Now, I want to move on to another chapter, which is called Honor Society. I believe it's chapter three in the book. Mm -hmm. And you write about what is the honor culture. The question I have for you, where is it most prevalent in the world? And are there pockets in the United States where also it is prevalent? It is most prevalent in the Arab world, in the Muslim world. It is um, very much, uh, I, and, and people you know, think of this as a derogatory statement, and it's not, it's a factual statement, that there are dignity cultures and there are honor cultures, and honor cultures tend to be more macho cultures, and one of those is, is Arab culture, um, Muslim culture. And uh, absolutely it exists in the United States, and it exists largely in, in the South and in some parts of the Midwest. And what are honor killings? Honor killings um, occur when are, are based on this idea that a, a man's honor is in is between the legs of the woman. If a woman misbehaves and therefore sullies the the honor of the father or the brother or the husband or the family, the only way to cleanse that honor and to restore that honor is for her to be killed. Now, I want to pull an observation from out of the book, and I want to ask you what it illustrates. And the observation is, place a frog in a boiling pot of water, it jumps out. Place a frog in cool water and slowly raise the temperature, it will gradually boil to death. What does that illustrate? Um, when I used it, it had to do with um, what happens in a, in a domestic in a, in a relationship of domestic abuse, that it, it's a slow process that you don't even really recognize what is happening um, until it escalates to such a level that there's no escape anymore, or it feels like there's no escape anymore. And that there very often is no escape because the most dangerous time for a woman to leave is, um, or the most da dangerous time in a relationship like this is when the woman leaves. So um, it has to do with the, just the slow, gradual progression and how we become inured to certain things that, that occur in our life, mostly things like violence. That's also true with racism. You know, you see a little bit of racism around you and then a little more and a little more and a little more. It's what, what, made, what you know, made the Third Reich possible. It just gradually creeps in and you don't even notice it. There's an ongoing discussion in this country about empathy, what it is. Are we an empathetic, empathetic country? I'm going to mention a name because this is what I call another case study. A lot of people may remember Ariel Castro in the Cleveland area. Can you tell that story? Ariel Castro um, was the man who kidnapped three girls. Was it three girls, four girls? I don't even remember anymore. It was a horrific story in Cleveland. And, and locked them in his house and had 
violent sex with them on a regular basis, beat them, kept them basically as his sex slaves for over 10 years until one of them finally was able to escape. I want to ask you if there are archetypes of uh, abusers. Let me just throw some names out there. Some are familiar. O.J. Simpson, Charlie Sheen, allegedly Johnny Depp, and most recently, in the last few days, Shia LaBeouf. Right. So is there an archetype, and how would you define that, that characteristic of behavior? That archetype is everything that we've talked about before. It's the, it's the pathological narcissist. It's the, the person who has an understanding of masculinity as um, you know, what, what people generally call toxic masculinity, right? That, that manhood is based on power and honor and the ability to vanquish, um, vanquish the enemy, to run, to run the show, to have, you know, the one who wears the pants in the family, the one who is the warrior who saves the nation, the, the, the big, strong Rambo type. All of these things figure into this and, and other aspects of the characters throughout. I mean, it's not just that they're an abuser. If you look at other things in their lives and how they identify themselves and how they've pursued their lives, um, you'll find that, that they are very much the same. And you will also find that they are very much the same as white supremacist leaders, as jihadist leaders, as even the foot soldiers of jihad. It's, it's an archetype. Yes, absolutely. There's so much more in this book we could go over. I would like to ask you to come back in the future because there's a lot more I want to explore with you. My guest has been Abigail Esmond. The book is called Rage narcissism, patriarchy, and the culture of terrorism. After the break, Tom Clavin joins the conversation. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Tom Clavin is the author of Tombstone, The Earp Brothers, Doc Holliday, and The Vendetta Ride from Hell. Tom is a New York Times bestselling author and has worked as a newspaper and website editor, magazine writer, and TV and radio commentator. So, Tom Clavin, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me back. There's, there's many places and people I can't say that to. All right. Well, you know, you're one of our favorites. Okay. <laughs> That's good. So- I got to tell you, the book cover, the book covers stare me right in the face. It's one of the best book covers I've ever seen. It could be a terrific moving poster. So who's responsible for the book jacket? You know, I have to give credit where credit is due. The folks at St. Martin's Press, uh, you know, Tombstone was the third is the third book in a trilogy. And really with every one of the books, Dodge City, you know, Wild Bill, Dodge City and now Tombstone. They've really, I thought, gone above and beyond with their their cover design. And so, you know, authors really, I mean, the only way they could take credit for such a thing is by saying that they approved it. So that's all I can say is I approved it. Uh, the, the concept of it, how they carried it out is, is, is way beyond my pay grade. So it's the people at St. Martin's Press that get the credit. So you mentioned up the top, the trilogy. Let's talk about the trilogy and why writing about the Old West really 
as an attraction for you? Well, I have to say that uh, Dodge City was not supposed to be part of a trilogy, which is the first book that I wrote. It's, it's, it's the second book in the trilogy chronologically, but, but uh, it was a one-off. I don't recall, I don't think I ever wrote about the West before, but I think I, I grew up at a time, I was a child at a time where everywhere you turned, there was entertainments that were based in the American West. Right. Uh, certainly, uh, the, the the movies were still producing westerns. You're rare to find a feature film today that's about the West. I think there's a movie coming out with Tom Hanks that is an exception to the rule. Uh, but certainly on television, you know, you had shows like Bonanza, Gunsmoke, uh, F Troop, uh, The Virginian. Uh, no, there's there's any Have Gun Will Travel. <clears throat> so, I think as somebody who who really embraced popular culture as a kid growing up, and a big part of that popular culture was the was stories about the American West. Uh, it's something I've always been um, interested in. Um, and then as my writing career went on, an opportunity didn't present itself to write about the American West until I pitched and sold the idea for Dodge City to St. Martin's Press. And when that book came out, I was already on to another book. I already had a contract for a book that was completely a World War II story, completely different book. But uh, but thankfully, when Dodge City came out, it was uh, very successful. It was on the New York Times bestseller list, and so it was like, let's pivot here. Let's 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 turn this into. I mean, let's just do another book that's about the American West with an iconic figure, and that's how Wild Bill came about about Hickok. And then when that did well, it was sort of like, well, you know what? <laughs> We're two-thirds of the way there. Let's finish a trilogy uh, where basically the story that chronologically begins with Wild Bill ends, in, so let's say in the 1850s and 1860s with Wild Bill Hickok, ends in the 1880s with Dodge City and the Earth Brothers and Doc Holliday. Well, who were the pivotal figures in opening up the American West? <laughs> Well, you'd have to say that uh, a lot of it has to do with just people who were, especially after war, after the Civil War, uh, you had a lot of people. Of course, there had been migration to the American West before the Civil War. That's how you had places like the Santa Fe Trail and the Oregon Trail. So, that, so migration and settlements were going on. Uh, the California Gold Rush, which began in the late 1840s, had a lot of people heading west. But after the Civil War, not only did that resume, people were looking for farmland and, and good uh, and 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 ranch land for their horses. But you had um, uh, you had a lot of people from the southern states who wanted out. You know, they felt like they were in occupied territory, which was the Reconstruction. And so they they sent they sometimes as individuals or as families they they hit the road and and went out west. So you have the settlers, and they were bringing on their backs almost literally. Uh, the the components that would way they could build schools and build churches and start businesses and build ranches and um, and with that you had bringing them along with them too sort of like a very basic rudimentary system of law and order and if you wanted to have law and order uh, you had to have people willing to take on the jobs of being lawmen and that's what the trilogy is about really uh, I did not start out to do this I'm just saying how it evolved that uh, you had uh, really Wild Bill Hickok as the prototype of the first kind of, of lawman after the Civil War, which was shoot faster than the bad guys, shoot faster and more accurately than the bad guys. You had that change that took place in Dodge City with Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson, 
And then you took basically the the almost like the conclusion of frontier lawmen in right. in, in Tombstone uh, with uh, with with not just Wyatt Earp but with his brothers and with with reluctantly Doc Holliday. So it's it's really the, the story of how law and order and a justice system also came to the American West that been, a system that was by that time already taken for granted in the East. You may want to, you may have touched upon this, but once again, I have to further explore what was a frontier town, and what did it represent in terms of an expanding America. Well, a frontier town was one that had uh, for the for the for that time and place, uh, you know, west of the Missouri River, west of Texas, in the Southwest, for example, the basics. Uh, you had uh, dry goods stores, you had saloons, you had hotels, um, you had uh, uh, corrals so that people, if they came to town, they had some place that would feed and water their horses, uh, they'd reshoe the horses. You know, whatever the basics were that people could come and get supplies and get some basic entertainment, uh, watering holes, things like that. Uh, eventually what happened is the towns wanted to expand and becoming more, maybe for want of a better word, civilized. So uh, they, start, they started to build the churches in town. They started to build the schools. Cemeteries, of course, had to be built uh, as more and more people became to these towns and some of whom died. You know, you had to, people were putting down roots. They wanted their loved ones in a cemetery that they could visit. So uh, Tombstone, for example, uh, one of the things I, I like to point out is that Tombstone in the movies is almost always portrayed as a, a kind of like a typical frontier town where you had everything was made of wood, right. and only the basics, and it was you had tumbleweeds going across the street, and things things like that. Tombstone became one of the more civilized and sophisticated towns on the frontier. Uh, it started had this hotel building boom. It, it, it built churches, it built schools. Restaurants, you can go to a French restaurant, an Italian restaurant, Delmonico's in Tombstone. So I think that's one of the things that I try to do with my book is point out that Tombstone was not a Hollywood backlot kind of Western town. It was actually quite a sophisticated town. It built itself as the San Francisco of the Southwest. Now, I want to backtrack a little bit in terms of the development of the area. What were the Dragoon Mountains and why were they significant in terms of the various populations in that area, including Native Americans? Well, I'm glad you mentioned Native Americans because two reasons off the top of my head why that mountain range was important. One, because it was a source of water. And uh, when Tombstone was first developing, they actually had to wagon in casks of water. They would take wagons up into the mountains uh, where there was plenty of fresh water and fill casks with them and bring them into Tombstone to, for the population to use for everything you use water for. Because in that part of the, of, of the south, uh, southeast Arizona, um, you know, you couldn't w build wells deep enough in most places to, to tap water, so you had to find it in the mountains. And they were also home to the, uh, the, the, the Apache, uh, uh, mostly Apache. Uh, in, in that area, uh, you know, that were led by uh, uh, several, a couple of generations of men that, you know, became kind of familiar names. You had uh, Cochise and you had uh, Geronimo. Right. 
And so uh, it was it was a uh, not just a hiding place for them. It was their what they viewed it at the time as ancestral grounds and people and Indian Native Americans had lived in, in the, the Dragoon Mountain area for generations, you know, going back to they used to, you know, peek over the crests and watch the Spanish conquistadors pass by. So uh, they were very, very important uh, for, 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 for a couple of centuries uh, to the native population. But then when you found Tombstone and a couple of the nearby towns being built, that's where the source of water was eventually. You know, they had the engineering and the labor skills to uh, to, to actually build a, um, uh, a almost like an aqueduct system to to bring water down out of the mountains to Tombstone, which was a big reason why the town survived, especially when you had two horrendous fires and almost wiped it off the map. I'm Larry Davids, and this is the podcast Artful Periscope. My guest is Tom Clavin, the author of Tombstone, The Earth Brothers, Doc Holliday, and Vendetta Ride from Hell. Now. I believe there were what was so interesting about Tombstone and probably other areas and frontier towns, but certainly Tombstone. There were inherent conflicts and tensions in Tombstone. I'm going to just list a few of the groups and maybe even subgroups. You had cattle ranchers, cattle rustlers, townspeople, uh, gamblers, law enforcement, and just like today, competing newspapers. So let's let's further explore what I call these inherent conflicts and tensions in Tombstone. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because a big reason that I found working on this story interesting is because of Tombstone was not just a random place on the American frontier and a couple of things happened. Uh, Tombstone was really the to be a flashpoint. It was it was a a place where the old west and the new west, or the west that people wanted to build, going into the twentieth century, uh, were directly opposing each other. Uh, you had the cowboys who wanted the old west to remain because they had a lot more freedom that way. You had the uh, cattle rustlers who wanted to keep basically having free reign to slip into the, across the Mexican border and steal cattle and rebrand them on the American side and sell them to the army, for example. Uh, you had people who were gamblers, crooked or otherwise. Uh, you had houses of ill repute, uh, certainly the more bawdy saloons. Um, and that was all representing the Old West, the Wild West, as we come to, to, to see, refer to it today. At the same time, you had a, a, a citizenry that wanted it to be a 20th century town, that, that you had people who were uh, in the justice system, law and order system, wanting to keep the peace, so to speak, uh, wanting to build uh, the, the schools and the cultural institutions. The Schieflin Hall was a big, uh, important symbol, uh, symbolic building for, for Tombstone, because that's where they put on plays. Not only original productions there, but they would import musicals and and uh, Gilbert and Sullivan operettas uh, to Tombstone. Right. right. So you had these two very opposing forces, the Old West and the New West, and Tombstone was the epicenter for that class between the two. And, you know, the gunfight at the OK Corral is an exciting event because it was an exciting event. But it also, I, I think I, I, I certainly made an effort to put this in perspective in the book Tombstone, uh, it was the event that um, was sort of like an inevitable violent confrontation between these two opposing sides. It's like you had these two weather systems 
that were moving towards each other, and they and and there was going to be thunder and lightning and a big right. storm ensuing from that. The, the the big storm, the the almost like almost like the cleansing storm in a way, was the gunfight at the OK Corral. Now, can I I maybe I pulled it from the book or got it someplace else, but this gunfight and then the vendetta can it be akin to men, mythology of the Iliad and the Odyssey? Yes, I, I mentioned that in my my author's note, if I remember correctly, that, uh, you know, it's become a, the gunfight at the OK Corral is is sort of like, a, you know, our Iliad the Odyssey mythical event. Uh, we know it took place, uh, and it involved people have, who have come to be known as these heroic, iconic figures, you know, sort of like our Agamemnon, our Ulysses, our Achilles, and, and the bad guy, Hector, and, and the so-called bad guys um, uh, of, of Troy, uh, who were not really bad guys, but, you know, when the Greeks tell the story, they were. Um, and so for us, uh, you know, there are certain events in our American history that took place on the frontier that are these, these almost mythical events that, that we look back and sort of define us in a lot of ways. Uh, you could talk about the the Alamo. Uh, and you could talk about the the uh, uh, gunfight at the OK Corral. You talk about uh, Custer's last stand and the you know the Battle of Little Bighorn. And there are a couple others in there. And and you know we come back to those stories and we are looking for new angles and we're looking for new meaning in those stories. So that's why I certainly would not have started out saying to my publisher. I want to write a book about Tombstone because there have been books about Tombstone before. There's a very good one published in 2012 called The Last Gunfight by Jeff Gwynn. Um, I, there's, there's also there were movies about, about Tombstone and some of which are good and some of which are not. <clears throat> but I, when, I want, when I was going to do it to complete a trilogy, uh, I wanted to find new meanings, new perspectives, and new uh, uh, information and new insights into characters and events. So that's why the uh, corral the point that I was making is the um, is the um, mythical qu quality of that and where it stands in our collective consciousness of like our Iliad and our Odyssey. So, in terms of mythology, what is true about? the Earp family, which is quite large, and what is true about the Clanton family, which also has been replicated and portrayed on the screen. So break it down, the reality versus the myth. Well, in, in if I can go reverse order with the Clantons and the McLowrys, they're often been portrayed as bad guys. They're the villains in our, in our, in our epic story. And in truth, they were not necessarily bad people. Uh, you know, you look at at uh, John Ford's uh, movie, My Darling Clementine, right, about Tombstone, and there's no doubt that the McClantons and the McLowrys are bad people. I mean, the 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 old man uh, Clanton is played by Walter Brennan as pure evil in that movie, and that was not. Uh, taking it to an extreme. That's the way they were portrayed. But the McLowrys and the Clantons were both were ranchers and they intended, they were putting down roots. They intended to be in a tombstone area for the long haul. And they they were not good guys in the sense that they sort of harbored and condoned some of the cowboys' illegal activities, but they weren't evil people. 
Uh, and at the same time, you had the Earp family, which have often been portrayed as the, you know, the good guy marshals riding into town to clean things up. That was not what they had. They had no intention of doing anything like that. Uh, that to me is what made writing about the Earp family even more interesting is that they were not this two-dimensional goody goodies. They weren't even wanting to be lawmen. In the case of Wyatt Earp, for example, a very conflicted character, he had been there and done that in Dodge City. And he had a good reputation as a lawman when he got to Tombstone, but that's not what he wanted to do it by any means. Uh, he, felt, he, he felt he had done his bit. He and Bat Masterson, with the help of others, had basically cleaned up Dodge City. He came to Tombstone so he could join forces with his four other, four other brothers, and they were going to become successful business people. And they were going to perhaps have families and put down roots themselves. If it was up to Wyatt Earp and his brothers, they, you know, or at least two of his brothers, uh, they would have remained in Tombstone for the rest of their lives, all in this Earp compound of their own building with their children and grandchildren running around. Uh, but events transpired that, 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 that they were denied that opportunity and very reluctantly uh, became the, the ad hoc law and order faction in Tombstone. And that reluctance, uh, I think, is part of their mythical quality. I mean, how many, how many archetypes do we have in our literature and our movies of the reluctant hero? And certainly the Earps in this case became very reluctant heroes. They want to be heroes at all. They would have rather have sat the whole thing out. Uh, but basically, it was it was them or or nobody was gonna was going to go against the the old west illegal forces. Hey, the just joining us, my guest is Tom Clavin. This is Larry Davidson. The podcast is Artful Periscope. I want to mention two movies. One I think was John Wayne's movie, one of his last ones called The Shooters, mm -hmm. and the other movie was The Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood. Mm -hmm. Two terrific movies, especially The Unforgiven, which is different portrayals of the old West. Are you familiar with those movies and the stories they're trying to tell? Yes, and, and I haven't seen either one probably for at least a couple of years, but they're both the kind of movies, to me anyway, I would want to see every two or three years. I'd probably like to see them even more often, but I just don't get around to it, because uh, they, they, they're... they're in a sense, they're the, a combination of mythical stories, but also very conflicted and tainted characters in a way. Certainly that's true of the Clint Eastwood movie. I'm going to mention something. And the phrase is, what is, what is old is new again? In the book, rigged elections and voter fraud. Mm -hmm. This is an interesting subtext to part of the stories that you cover in this book. Do you want to talk about that? Because it did happen because I, I trust your research. Yeah, it did happen. Uh, and, and I mean, let's face it, it's, there's always have been examples of, uh, of voter fraud and elections that have been rigged or at least interfered with, let's put it that way, uh, in, in, uh, in American history. I mean, some people, uh, uh, we'll look at, uh, and some people have, they've looked at the 1960 presidential election where, you know, what was going on in Chicago and Illinois that uh, was was a pivotal uh, a, a factor in the election of John Kennedy. I don't know if it was, you know, made that big a difference or made all the difference in the world. I really don't know. I'm not an expert on that. But in particular case of Tombstone, there was an election uh, for a sheriff of the county, I believe it was. And in one of the districts in the county, which where the the, the voting inspectors were basically the 
uh, corrupt cowboys that wanted a particular person elected, uh, they claimed there was something like 220 votes uh, cast for this particular candidate, and there were only 10 registered voters in that district. So, well, now, in that case, the evidence was pretty clear, and eventually a court threw out that result of that election. I think we're still waiting for evidence in the more recent uh, uh, accusations about voter fraud. In 1906, there was a famous earthquake and fire in San Francisco, which led ultimately to the formation of the Bank of America. Now, there was a major fire in a Tombstone, but what led to the formation of Wells Fargo and Company, very important to the area? It was. Uh, there were actually two major fires uh, about a year apart in Tombstone. It's kind of miraculous. I mean, people in Tombstone to this day, there's sort of like a slogan, Tombstone, the town that refused to die. Uh, because in, in June of 1881, there was a fire that destroyed about uh, half of the town. And in May 1882, there was another fire that destroyed about a third of the town. Because like most frontier towns, Tombstone at that time was made of wood. But yes, one of the sidebar stories in, in, the, in my book, Tombstone, is about Wells Fargo. Uh, they, you know, most people, many people today just know them as a, as a bank with a lot of re- you know, far-reaching uh, financial resources. Uh, but they started out as, as a company, uh, uh, certainly in, in, in early days in Tombstone, too. Uh, they would transport money in boom towns. They would transport uh, or, but especially money, people would, would you know, they, they'd put money, they had to put money somewhere. I mean, if you were working on a silver mine, for example, and it was paying off, you couldn't walk around with money in your pocket because somebody would take it from you uh, with a pickaxe. Uh, so you had not only had Wells Fargo banks, but you had Wells Fargo wagons uh, that would transport this money. In fact, Wild, Wyatt Earp was one of the people who was what they would call at the time shotgun messengers. Right. Uh, they would ride on these wagons and, and their job would be to protect the, the money from being stolen. And uh, so that's, it's kind of like one of the interesting sidebars to the story is that this you know, international company today a uh, got its humble origins and doing things like that would, would just a couple of guys on a wagon hauling a lockbox full of money. Now, we, a lot of people know the gunfight at OK Corral, but what was the vendetta ride from hell? That was another reason why I wanted to uh, find something in the, in the Tombstone story that maybe has not been given enough uh, attention before. Uh, and there are really two things, one of which you just alluded to. Uh, in most cases, in, in several of the books and in many of the movies, uh, when the gunfight at the OK Corral ends, that's the end of the story. You know, cue the music, cue the credits, over. Um, you know, in a movie like The Gunfight at the OK Corral with Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, that's certainly true. Uh, but two major things happened after the gunfight at the OK Corral. I mean, several important things happened, but one of them was that, you know, immediately after the, the last gunshot at the OK Corral fight, uh, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp were put on trial for murder. And it was, it was a very uh, complicated, uh, convoluted, and dr- somewhat dramatic uh, case that took the entire month of November 1881 until at the very end of the month, the judge ruled, uh, basically acquitted uh, Doc and Wyatt, because if the judge had not, uh, the next step would have been hauling them off to Tombstone 
for another legal proceeding, which could have resulted in either them going to prison for the rest of their lives or being hung. So most people don't know how close Doc and Wyatt came to, you know, basically never being a factor again in our American West. And then the other thing that happened is what you talked about, the Earp Vendetta ride. Uh, once, once the gunfight at the OK Corral was over, most people, including the Earps, were content to move on. Uh, okay, we got that out of our system. Now let's go back to building the town into the, the future we wanted to have. Uh, let's go back to trying to be business people and making money. And uh, the cowboys, however, were unhappy with this because, let's face it, at the gunfight at the OK Corral, the three of, of, the, um, of the men who participated, who died, were all ranchers and part of that cowboy faction. So they were unhappy. So the first thing they did a few days uh, after Christmas was, was ambush Virgil Earp and shoot him. They didn't kill him, but they, they basically put him out of action. He would, he would be crippled for the rest of his life uh, from his, his gunshot wounds. And then a couple of months later, they, they ambushed and murdered uh, Morgan Earp, Wyatt's younger brother. And it was at that point where it was like, okay, we're never going to be safe. I mean, I have a scene in the book where uh, Morgan has just died, and Doc has come. Run- Doc Holliday has come running to the to the billiard parlor where the shooting took place, and he and Wyatt exchange a glance, and they both they realize at that moment that they have to go and avenge these these shootings, and because if they don't, it's never going to end. They're they're going to be have a bullseye on their backs, as well as possibly their spouses, girlfriends, uh, friends, whatever. So they sort of like commit to each other at that point. We're going to saddle up and we're going to go after these guys, which is what they did. And that's what became known as the Earp Vendetta Ride because it was Wyatt, Doc, another Earp brother, Warren Earp, the youngest of the Earps, and, and about three or four friends of theirs who saddled up. And they did indeed, you know, go after these guys. And, and for the next couple of weeks, there was plenty of violent confrontations, leaving several men dead. Uh, at the end of which, basically, that's when the Tombstone story, to me, ends at the end of the Earp Vendetta Rise, certainly not at the end of the gunfight at the OK Corral. All right, so last question I'll post to you, Tom Clavin. Was Tombstone the last American frontier? I do believe so. I mean, certainly there were towns in the American frontier founded after Tombstone. It's the last one we know about. Uh, one reason is because it was one of the last, if not the last, of the boom towns. You know, once, once a few years after the gunfight at the OK Corral, when the silver mines got played out, got flooded and played out, that was the end of the Tombstone boom town. There really wasn't much in the way of boom towns after that. Another reason is that the frontier basically came to a close. Uh, even the Department of the Interior in 1889 issued a ruling that the frontier was closed. You know, we had, not that every square acre in, in the lower 48 was settled by any means, but there was, there was no new territory to explore. We knew where everything was. You know, we, we had the maps that showed there was no longer, as had been the case two or three decades earlier, they were still referring to uh, the middle America, west of the Missouri as the great American desert. So Tombstone, represented really that last frontier town before the frontier closed. So there's kind of a poignance to it that uh, that Tombstone got what it wanted, basically. It did embrace the, the, the civilization it wanted. It did enter the 20th century. It became uh, still a, a kind of like a sophisticated 
kind of kind of city. But the poignance to it is when it when that happened, when that page was turned, uh, we left the the Wild West and many of the myths of the American West behind. My guest has been Tom Clavin. The book is called Tombstone: The Hurt Brothers, Doc Holliday, and the Vendetta Ride from Hell. Tom, thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. It's always enjoyable to talk to you. Uh, after the break, commentary from novelist Peter Blauner. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Finally, Commentary from novelist Peter Blauner. Well, it's been uh, a strange year. I feel like we're kind of slowly emerging from one of those eras in human history where we all look at each other and say, what the hell just happened? Uh, For the better part of the year, we've been hunkering down and dwelling in our self-contained pods, our self-contained environments, Losing touch with each other, losing touch with culture, losing touch with uh, even uh, the simplest parts of life, and the pleasure of just walking down streets and seeing other people's faces. And forget about it, uh, going in to restaurants or hearing live music or going to the, the movies or anything like that. And it'll be interesting to see how we deal with re-emerging from this period. Um, This year has been a hard one in a lot of ways, and and one of the things that's been hardest to deal with is the loss of um, some great people, uh, some of them not very well-known, some of them uh, obviously front-line workers and not famous, but uh, great and essential people for other reasons. An essential person in my life who died this year was the great writer Pete Hamill, um, author of books like A Drinking Life and Forever, uh, former editor of the New York Daily News and the New York Post, but also best known to a generation or two of New Yorkers as a great newspaper columnist for uh, the Post and the Daily News. Pete wasn't the only great journalist who died this year. Um, Sadly, his brother John, who was younger than him, died a month later. Very tough year for a great, great family. And Jim Dwyer, wonderful, wonderful uh, writer and reporter for the New York Times uh, and a friend of our family as well, also uh, passed this year. Um, And in some ways... It feels like the end of an era for a certain kind of storytelling because what each of those people did was represent the voice of a certain strain of working class New York. Um, journalism is often dominated these days by people who went to Ivy League schools and really exist in uh, elite environments and, and, and don't have contact with people who come from other environments, except through 
glance and contact through their reporting and and in their ways, Jim, John, and Pete were really authentic, heartfelt voices. Uh, I think there will be other voices that will come along and take their places. Uh, they will come from uh, the black community. I hope uh, the the whatever you, uh, term you're comfortable with in representing uh, Mexican, Ecuadorian, uh, Guatemalan, uh, uh, Spanish-speaking uh, communities, uh, Asian communities, uh, um, and and white working-class communities, of course, uh, as well. Um, but I will miss each of those guys, and I will miss their voices in the meantime. Thanks for letting me have my say, Larry. We are recording this episode in the middle of December. This is our last episode for 2020. I hope 2021 is much better and much brighter. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro. Sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tied you to her kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair and from-